Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to an, uh, an exciting and thrilling episode of Killers, Cults, and Nutjobs 2.0, where we cover all crime, and, and we do. Monica and I were just talking. I am, as always, the great white snark Scotty J. Seated across from me is the lovely and twisted Monica. Hi. You know, we were right. <laughs> She's, she's had a she's had a rough day at work, folks. So just yeah. she does she's not coming in with the the usual pep and vigor. Yeah, this is said one of the days I'm glad it's not YouTube. They're right. No, we were just talking before we we turned the mics on, and uh, you know, there's 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 some cases we want to cover, and um, and, you know, we like to keep you guys informed on everything that happens in the uh, in the true crime world. Ted Kaczynski died yesterday. The Unabomber. Again, I I read the article, and that he they found him unresponsive in his cell. Yeah, and then I just saw an article said so that he um he had cancer. Okay. And that he actually it was reportedly to be reported to be suicide. Well, I know he was moved down to a, a a federal medical prison in North Carolina because he was at Supermax in Colorado. Yeah, then they moved him in 2021 to the North Carolina, which is actually where Bernie Madoff died. Dun, dun, dun. Yep. Yeah, med- a federal medical center in right. North Carolina. Yep. So I mean, well, Kaczynski was serving until like the end of time. So basically, yeah. <laughs> you just kind of go, well, he was going to die in here anyway. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it did. He, I, I remember the first time I remember hearing about that case was on. Um, Unsolved Mysteries with Robert Stack. Hey, so this was obviously before, what, 95? Yeah, I was still in grade school. I watched, my family watched Unsolved Mysteries. It was like a Wednesday night show. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. And. Heck, I've had James watching it. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Uh-huh. I think the original Robert Stack ones are on um, Tubi. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, see, I used to watch that just for like the the unexplained because I, w- I was a kid I was always into ghost stories and stuff like that same I I really I really want to bring back creepy tales I just don't know how yet I'm, I do I, I want to bring it back I just don't know how I'm, I'm going to do it well, and then Robert Hansen like also. Yeah, the the Soviet uh, the, the the Soviet spy died too. Yeah, and he was in Florence, Colorado. Supermax, ADX Florence, I I believe so. Okay, yes, I know they send the the, the worst of the worst to Supermax. Yes, yeah, so there's probably a- guy AD mm-hmm. Max. Yeah, so it was probably guys in Supermax that were there laying the bricks. Yeah. Well, yeah, and then he died um the fifth. Which was funny because I was listening to a podcast 
from the end of May. Mm -hmm. And they were talking about because I was looked for Robert Hansen then, and that was the most recent one. And they were discussing he was serving a life sentence. Yeah. That it was kind of like, or as it's known, <laughs> five more days. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which obviously they couldn't. But I was like, I thought the timing of them putting that out was just perfect. Oh, I wanted to tell you before we turn it on, I did order the book on um, Cyrus Teed. Okay. Yeah, I had to place an order for class for, for my final paper I was telling you about. Mm -hmm. Um, I had to order the uh, Dumas Malone six book biography on uh, Jefferson. Okay. So I ordered a few other books while I was placing that order. Okay. But we've got a good one for you here, folks. Uh, this is a location that Monica just recently visited within the past couple years. Yeah. Yay. Yeah. Thanks I rem to mom having to. <laughs> business there and i was like please let go of that <laughs> i remember when you text me you're like <laughs> i'm here i mean i'm like i'm thinking well, where the fuck are you? i know you're in california what are you doing and then i was like oh she's at the bank uh-huh when i found out how close the place we were staying at was to the bank location nice i was like oh heck to the yeah <laughs> one of these days when i'm in wisconsin i'm gonna try making it up to the little bohemia where the uh the shootout with Dillinger happened. Oh yeah, have to do that. Yeah, because I've been to well, I I've been to Crown Point, but I haven't been to where he was held. Because mm -hmm. there's a there's a nice collectible shop I like to visit in uh, Crown Point too. So, but today we're talking about the North Hollywood shootout. Now, normally. Yeah, we watched. There, there might be some language in this, so I'm just throwing a little disclaimer out there for you folks. I know you guys, you know, have I have I, I know I've said things that, that would make a sailor and a diesel mechanic and a construction worker blush all at the same time, yeah, because <laughs> I got yelled at at work for, um, if, if, if anyone's going to be offended by this word, I'm going to explain how I used it. I said that San Bernardino was retarded. Mm -hmm. And I was using it in the form of, okay, they're ignorant because of how it, it was something about a placement on the book. It's basically a judgment call situation. I could say that it it's not, I could say that it's one way and they go, well, no, it's another, whatever. Well, one of the ladies at work got offended because she has a sister with mental problems and she doesn't like the word. And she held us up for five minutes until I apologized. Please. And I'm like, I know way more offensive words than retarded. Retarded is the tip of the iceberg, right? It slash is also fairly recently, too. Hmm. Switched around because I remember that back in 96, the March of Dimes was using it. In their commercials, right? That's well, I had to ask my daughter when did when did the word become offensive? I'd say like two thousands, because obviously ninety six it wasn't. Yeah, she was like, "Well, it happened when I was in high school." I'm like, "Huh? Wasn't offensive when I was? I one of my friends was in the dummy class, and you know, he was fine. 
But yeah, like I said, actual like nonprofits, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. All right, we're gonna get into the story. We start off with Larry Eugene Phillips Jr. He was born on September twentieth, nineteen seventy, and I know I'm gonna butcher this name, so bear with me. Decibel Stefan Emilian. He goes by email, so thank God for that. Matasaranu. Oh, I, I okay. She gave me the nod, so I, I got it. Yeah, I've watched enough shows. I'm pretty sure that's exactly yeah how it said. Yeah, well, I'm just gonna call him Eli when I have to say the names. I ain't gonna try, but uh, I'll end up butchering Emil? it. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Emil. E Emil Emil what uh, Emerald Lagasse Bam. Okay, he was born on July twenty July nineteenth, nineteen sixty six, and they first met at Gold's Gym in Venice, Los Angeles, California, in eighteen Venice Beach. I can just see it now. The guys are out there on the gym pumping weights. Got got that douchey blonde spiked hair going on. That was popular in eighty nine. And uh, the, the 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 reflective sunglasses, the in their standards, oiling each other up. Yo, bro, look at me! I bunch. Look, look what I can press. You know, everyone's trying to be like Arnold because Arnold was big back in '89. I'm thinking, what movie of his was out at that time? Terminator. Is it Terminator? Terminator. Ninety one, ninety two. Ninety one. I saw it before I went to boot camp. Yeah. So they had uh, had mutual interest in weightlifting, bodybuilding, and firearms. Because why not? It's California, and you're a douche. Before meeting, Phillips was a habitual offender, responsible for multiple real estate scams and counts of shop shoplifting. Because we're going to go into a venture, you've got to have your criminal credentials in order. And Emil, who was born in Timisora, Romania, to parents who relocated in Los Angeles in 74, was a qualified electrical engineer and ran a relatively unsuccessful computer repair business. Which is pretty weird back then because it was still, oh. you have like smaller... They were they were the boxes with the, the big ass floppy drive. Yeah. And the internet really wasn't that well known at that point. You no, know, only the extreme nerds had it. Right. So extreme I don't know how no. right. I don't know how they were downloading their porn then. They weren't. <laughs> no, they went to the back room at Family Video and rented it like everyone else did in eighty nine. On July 20th, 1993, Phillips and Emil decide, or they robbed an armored car outside the branch of the First Bank in Littleton, Colorado. Littleton. Why does that sound familiar? Columbine. Um, okay. Nah. Yeah, okay. On October 29th, they were arrested in Glendale, northeast of Los Angeles, for operating a stolen vehicle. Dumbasses. A subsequent search of their vehicle after Phillips surrendered with a concealed weapon, police found two semi-automatic rifles, two handguns, more than 1,600 rounds 
of 762 39mm rifle ammunition, 1,200 rounds of 19mm parabellum, and 45 ACP handgun ammunition. Radio scanners, smoke bombs, improvised explosive devices, body armor vest, and three different California license plates. They were planning something. I mean, damn. I've watched a lot of bank heist movies, and, and that, yeah. After their release, most of their seized property was... What? Most of the property was returned to them except for the confiscated firearms and explosives. Well, <laughs> thank God for California. You cabbage-worshipping hippies. On June 14, 1995, Phillips and Emil ambushed a Brinks armored car in Winnetka, Los Angeles, killing a guard, Herman Cook, and seriously wounding another. In May of 96, they robbed two branches of Bank of America in San Fernando Valley, stealing approximately $1.5 million. I would have retired after that. Yeah, called it a day, right? Right. You got one... Taxes on that, so... No, and if you're going to split $1.5 million, you're still having a good payday. Especially back then. Right. It was, bye. I'm going to Thailand. Yeah. I'm uh, going they got greedy. Okay. I'm going somewhere where there's no extradition laws and I can hang out with orangutans all day. Uh-huh. Good time. I would. Uh -huh. Oh, I would. Thailand? Orangutans? As long as I can call one Louie, I'm good. I'm king of the swinging zoo. Yeah, I, I love Disney's Jungle Book just for King Louie. Now, the pair were dubbed the High Incident Bandits by investigators due to the weaponry they had used in three robberies prior to their attempt in North Hollywood. On the morning of February 28th, 1997, after months of preparation, that included extensive reconnaissance. Recon Recon yeah. yeah, I know it. Yeah, I know. Reconnoitering. Like my, yeah, I my brain can't wrap itself around words today. So. Yeah, you know, I haven't read a military book in a couple weeks, but that that's it. Okay. Oh, their intended target, the Bank of America branch located at 6600 Laurel Canyon Boulevard. Phillips and Emil armed themselves with the semi-automatic HK-91 and several illegally converted weapons. Two Norinco Type 56S rifles, a fully automatic Norinco Type 56S1, and a fully automatic Bushmaster XM-15 Dissipator. You know, your ex-husband could probably listen to this episode with all the ammunition going, hi, 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 hi. I know, right? The robbers allegedly filled a jam jar with gasoline and placed it in the back seat with the intention of setting the car and weapons on fire to destroy evidence after the robbery. Nice! Phillips wore roughly 40 pounds of equipment, including a type... Type 3A. Well, yeah, I know it's brand new, but... 
He, he just couldn't get it out today. Yeah. Bulletproof vest. And a groin guard. Because, you know, God, protect that area. Hey, ladies, you don't know what it's like, all right? A load-bearing vest with multiple military ammo pouches and several pieces of homemade body armor created from spare vests covering his shins, thighs, and forearms. Emil wore only a Type 3A bulletproof vest, but he included a metal ballistic plate to protect the vital organs. Additionally, each man had a watch sewn onto the back of one glove in order to monitor their timing. Now that's, that is good. Well, yeah. You know, because you don't want to keep moving. No, know. if you're on a timetable, you can just look down at your at your hand and, you know, keep time. Yeah. Before entering, they took the barbiturate phenobarbital prescribed to Emil as a sedative to calm their nerves. Of course. The forensic toxicology laboratory of the coroner's office later also found ephedrine and... Why Phenol- did they- Phenylpropylamine. Thank you. In Philip's blood. And phenytoin in Emil's blood. Philip's and Emil, driving a white 1987 Chevrolet Celebrity, arrived, nice at the car. Bank, arrived at the Bank of America branch at the intersection of Laurel Canyon Boulevard and Archwood Street in North Hollywood around 9.16 a.m. and set their watch alarms for eight minutes the police response time they had estimated. To come up with this time frame, Phillips had used a radio scanner to monitor police transmissions prior to the robbery. As the two were walking in, oops, they were spotted by two <laughs> LAPD officers, Lauren Farrell and Martin Perello, who just happened to be driving down Laurel Canyon in a <laughs> Well, that blew your timetable there, genius. Yep. Officer Farrell issued a call on the radio, 15A43, requesting assistance. We have a possible 211 in progress at the Bank of America. 211 is a code for robbery. Yeah. COVID hadn't happened yet, and even if it had, you did not need all that. Well, I mean, if you see two guys walking in, like, armored and carrying guns, you know they're not cashing their paychecks. Mm -hmm. As they entered the bank... Each armed with a Norenko Type 56 S1 rifle, Phelps and Emil forced a customer leaving the ATM lobby near the entrance into the bank and onto the floor. A security guard inside saw the scuffle and the heavily armed robbers and raided his partner in the parking lot to call the police. Of course, the call was not received. Of course not. Phelps shouted, this is a fucking holdup, before he and Matt. And Emil opened fire into the ceiling in an attempt to scare the approximately 30 bank staff and customers and to discourage resistance. Now, I mean, I don't know if you were able to go into the bank. Of course. That's why I was told my mom. I was like, um, need to like, you know. Now, were the bullet holes at that at that branch so we can go in and not look, you know. Like, right. What are you doing here? Um, were the bullet holes still in the ceiling? No, I think they pretty much redid everything because it, it had been 25 years, too. We were lucky enough the bank was still there and slash that it was still a Bank of America, the way banks change names and everything these days. 
Right. So Emil shot open the bulletproof door, which was designed to resist only low velocity rounds. Well, and they're carrying high velocity rounds that would uh, definitely blast open the door. And gained access to the tellers and vault. The robbers forced assistant manager John Villagrana to open the vault. Villagrana obliged and began to fill the robber's money bag. However, due to a change in the bank's delivery schedule, the vault contained significantly less than $750,000 the gunman had expected. Well, you know, there was this wonderful movie called uh, Groundhog Day that, you know, I just kept playing this over and over. Emil, enraged at this development, argued with Villagrana and demanded more. Now, in an apparent show of frustration, Emil then fired a full drum magazine of 75 rounds into the bank safe, destroying much of the remaining money, you idiot. He then that's attempted... Major. No! Yeah, that's amazing. No! He then attempted to open the bank's ATM, but due to a change in policies, the branch manager no longer had access to the money inside because everybody believes that they can rob an ATM to get the money. Well, and also some of these changes like had also been because of them. Right. So they... So, yeah, they're already kind of like sort of screwing themselves over by their past actions because banks had changed. Right. And also, I mean, everybody, I used to watch World's Dumbest Criminals. And you know how many clips were of guys trying to steal an ATM? Like 90% of them. Right. It's it's guys stealing an ATM because they believe that they can get to the cash inside the ATM because it's it's a quick rob. These things are bolted to the floor. They're heavy to move. Seen some like trying to pull the, with the the truck or something. Yeah. Throw a chain around the it, the, the bumper yeah. comes off, you know. The ATM's still sitting there. You're right. The, the ATM is like indestructible and the little Toyota truck is destroyed. Yeah. I don't know what in the hell they use to make those things because they, they got to be made out of the same things that's holding the uh, Declaration and the Constitution at the National Archives. Because mm -hmm. those things can withstand a nuclear blast. Or at least that's what the guards told me. Near, but don't get near <laughs> Right. Now, before leaving, the robbers locked the hostages in the vault. In the end, the two left with $303,305 and three die packs, which later exploded, ruining the money they stole. Thank God for die packs. Outside, the first responding officers heard the gunfire within the bank I made another radio call report, reporting shots fired before taking cover behind their patrol car. While the robbers were still inside, additional North Hollywood Division Patrol and detective units arrived and took strategic positions at all four corners of the bank, establishing a perimeter around it. Smart maneuver. At approximately 9.24 a.m., Phillips exited through the north doorway and after spotting the police cruiser 200 feet away, opened fire for several minutes. In the initial shooting, Phillips wounded Sergeant Dean Haynes, Officer Martin Whitfield, James Zabravan, I want to say Zadaran so bad, and Stuart Guy, and Detectives William Krulak and Tracy Angeles. 
as well as three civilians that had taken cover behind Sergeant Haynes' patrol car. Phillips also fired at an LAPD helicopter flown by Charles D. Paraguay Jr. as it surveyed the scene from above, forcing it to withdraw to a safer distance. Phillips briefly retreated inside, then reemerged through the north doorway while Emil exited through the south exit. Phillips and Emil continued to engage the officers, firing sporadic bursts into the patrol cars that had been positioned on Laurel Canyon in front of the bank and in the parking lot across the street. Officers who were mostly armed with then LAPD standard issue Beretta 9mm pistols, Smith & Wesson Model 38 Special Revolvers, and a 12-gauge Ithaca Model 37 Pump Action Shotgun continued to return fire at both Roberts, or ro both Roberts, both robbers, but found quickly that their handguns and shotguns would not penetrate the body armor worn by Phillips and Emil. Aim for the head. Aim for the head. Yeah. That's what I do on a on any shooting game that I'm that I play. Mm -hmm. Headshot. I ain't got time to waste rounds into a body. No, I want you down quick. This was compounded by the fact that most of the LAPD officer service pistols had insufficient range at longer distances where most officers found themselves positioned relative to the bank entrance. Hmm. And this was a few this was about six years after Rodney King and you didn't upgrade? Uh yeah, six years. Rodney King was like ninety one, ninety two, so about five, six uh, yeah, years. March ninety one for Right. You know, and then 92 with the, yeah, the Brian. Yeah, so you, sh you should have just like upgraded. Mm -hmm. An officer was heard on the LAPD police frequency approximately 10 to 15 minutes into the shootout warning other officers that they should not stop the getaway vehicle. They've got automatic weapons. There's nothing we have that can stop them. Additionally, the officers were pinned down by the heavy sprays of gunfire coming from the robbers making it extremely difficult to attempt a headshot with their handguns. Call of Duty hadn't been invented yet. I'm sure there was an eight... If it had been, I'm sure there was like an eight-year-old you could have given a gun to. He would have pegged them. Several other officers acquired five AR-15-style rifles from a nearby gun store to combat the robbers. Two locations adjacent to the bank's north parking lot... Provided good cover for officers and detectives. Police likely shot Phillips with their handguns while Phillips was still firing and taking cover near the four vehicles adjacent to the north wall of the bank. Gray Honda Civic, Ford Explorer, White Acura Legend, and the Chevrolet Celebrity. Oh, One location Celebrity was a good car. That Officer Richard Zelensky of Valley Traffic Division effectively used for cover was the adjacent Del Taco restaurant's West Wall? Uh, can I get at number six while we're uh, while we're involved here? Well, yeah, I'm mean, just going to pin yeah, down. I, it. You guys want a nacho platter? Anyone? Nacho platter? Okay. Zelensky fired eighty-six nine-millimeter rounds at Phillips and is believed to have hit Phillips during their exchange. He was also able to use this position to draw Phelps' fire away from Sergeant Haynes and Officer Whitfield, 
who were both wounded and had only marginal cover behind trees across Laurel Canyon Boulevard. The other location that proved advantageous for the LAPD was the backyard of 6641 Agnes Avenue. A cinder block wall provided relative cover for several detectives shooting at Phillips with their 9mm pistols. Detective Bancroft and Detective Harley, in particular, were able to position themselves behind cover and fire between 15 and 24 rounds at Phillips from a distance of approximately 55 feet. Nice. After a meal, back the Chevrolet Celebrity out of the handicapped space in the North Park and Life, probably where my mom parked, Phillips received a gunshot wound to his left wrist based upon helicopter news footage that showed him react to pain. At the same approximate time, LAPD gunfire struck the Heckler and Koch rifle that Phillips was firing, rendering it inoperable with the penetration to the receiver. Phillips discarded it and rearmed himself with another assault rifle from the trunk of the sedan. After LAPD radio operators received the second officer down call from police at the shootout, a tactical alert was issued. The SWAT team, composed of Donnie Anderson, Steve Gomez, Peter Weiretter, and Richard Massa arrived 18 minutes after the shooting had begun. They were armed with AR-15s, and they wore running shoes and shorts under their body armor as they had been on an exercise run when they received the call. So upon arrival, they commandeered a nearby armored truck, which was driven by Hector Quevedo and David Campbell which was used to extract wounded civilians and officers from the scene. That was smart. Mm-hmm. Well, I wonder if they got a ticket for parking in a handicapped spot. Well, they should have. That too, you know? Right, you know? Send That's against the law, man. Uh-huh. Unless, they plan, unless they planned on making honest people out of them, you know? Well, in the parking lot, Emil was shot in the right butt the right leg, and the left forearm. A fourth projectile then lacerated Al, his upper right eye socket, and prompted him to duck behind the hood of the getaway car in shock. He I was shot in the buttocks. I think it was more his price. Eye socket, Owie. He subsequently abandoned his duffel bag of money, entered the getaway vehicle, and started the engine. Phillips retrieved the HK-91 from the open trunk and continued firing upon officers while walking alongside the sedan, using it for cover. This is what you can see in, like, on YouTube. Okay. That's, like, more one of the more famous mm-hmm. I guess of this, say. As Phelps approached the si- passenger side of the getaway vehicle, he was hit in the shoulder and his rifle was struck in the receiver and magazine by bullets fired by police. After firing a few more shots with one arm, Phillips discarded the HK-91 and retrieved the Norinco Type 56 before exiting the parking lot and retreating onto the street while Emil drove down the road. I said that was a one in a million shot. Uh, government must have kept all that money because I ain't seen a dime of it. At 9.52 a.m., Phillips turned east on Archwood Avenue and took cover behind a parked semi-truck where he continued to fire at the police until his rifle jammed. Unable to clear the jam because of a gunshot wound to his left wrist, 
He dropped the rifle and drew a Beretta 92 FS pistol, which he began firing. He was then shot in the right hand by Officer Coronado Torres. That's an awesome name. I am Coronado Torres. Yep, this is Conrado. I like Coronado better. Yeah, sure. I am Conrado Torres. Now, it doesn't have the same ring. Causing him to drop the pistol after retrieving it, he placed the muzzle under his chin and fired. Oh, he took himself out? Yep, and that was called on live TV. Oh, man. Or just bang. (laughs) As he fell, Officer John Caparelli shot him in the upper torso, severing his spine. Nice! Now, either bullet may have been been fatal. Uh, I think the one under the chin was fatal there. Officers across the street continued to shoot Phillips' body several times as he was on the ground, just to make sure he was dead. After the firing had stopped, officers in the area surrounded Phillips, handcuffed him. Though he was obviously deceased at this point, but it was still standard procedure. And remove his ski mask. Emile's vehicle was rendered inoperable after two of its tires were shot out and the windshield covered in bullet holes. Obviously, they'd never seen them high-speed high speed chases where uh, they shoot the tires out and the, them boys still keep on going. At 9.56 a.m., he attempted to carjack a yellow 63 Jeep Gladiator on Archwood by shooting at the driver who fled on foot three blocks east of where Phillips died. He quickly transferred all of his weapons and ammunition, ammunition from the getaway car but was unable to operate the Jeep due to the driver engaging the electrical kill switch before fleeing. Smart maneuver. It seems like everyone else in this story is like smarter than the criminals. Which is finally, finally, that's true. Right, yeah. As KCBS and KCAL helicopters hovered overhead, A patrol car driven by SWAT officers Donnie Anderson, Steve Gomez, and Richard Massa quickly arrived and stopped on the opposite side of the truck to where the Chevrolet was stopped. Emil left the truck, took cover behind the original getaway car, and engaged him in two and a half minutes of almost uninterrupted gunfire. Emil's chest armor deflected a double tap from SWAT officer Anderson, which briefly winded him before he continued firing. Anderson fired his AR-15 below the cars and wounded Emil in his unprotected lower legs, and he was soon unable to continue and put his hands up to show surrender. They shot me in the shins, boy. Them Nazis. I I could do Cotton Hill better, but my voice is a little rough because it's still allergy season here. Seconds after Emil's capitulation, officers rushed him to pin him down. As he was being cuffed, SWAT officers asked for his name, to which he replied, I'm Pete. When asked if there was any more suspects, he reportedly said, Fuck you, shoot me in the head. Don't tempt me, because I will. Don't tempt me. Ambulance personnel were following standard procedure in the hostile situations by refusing to enter the hot zone, as the area was not cleared and Emil was still considered to be dangerous. The police radioed for an ambulance, but Emil, loudly swearing profusely and still goading the police to shoot him, 
died before the ambulance and EMTs were allowed to reach the scene almost 70 minutes later. During a later lawsuit against retired policeman John Futrell and James Lojetki and the city, jurors heard testimony that involved an ambulance crew that arrived but left without a meal after Vatecki allegedly told the crew to get the blank out of here. We can pretty much guess what the expletive was. Now, during the trial, Lojecki testified he said something similar. The ambulance driver testified he believed he was in danger by being in the area. Officers testified that they tried to get the ambulance to come back or to get another one, but the plaintiffs focused on a point at which Futrell canceled an ambulance call and told the dispatcher, I have no officers or citizens down, only a suspect. Later reports showed that Emil had been shot 29 times in the legs and died from trauma due to excessive blood loss, blood loss from two gunshot wounds in his left thigh. They could they could have hit the uh, hit the artery. Excessive blood loss in the in the thigh. Yeah, he probably took his. Uh... See, that's he protected all the vital organs. He didn't protect his legs. Most of the incident, including the death of Phillips and the surrender of Emil, was broadcast live by the news helicopters, which hovered over the scene and televised action as events unfolded. Over 300 law enforcement officers from various forces had responded to the citywide tactical alert. By the time the shooting had stopped, Phillips and Emil had fired about 1,100 rounds, approximately around every two seconds. And that is the North Hollywood bank robbery. Yeah, that the lawsuit was brought by the mom. Whose mom? The um Emil's mom. Oh, okay. And she tried to sue the police because they uh shot her son who was doing something stupid. Not so much the you know, that basically that they let him bleed out and they didn't get, you know, the medical care for him. Well, he kept telling them to shoot me in the head. Well, yeah, so it's like not exactly feeling, you know, maybe I'm trying to get more of the I think it was like you. Know, right. Like, yeah, yeah. Okay. Fine. I actually, uh, while I'm thinking about it. In this trial or something. Okay. While I'm yeah. thinking about it, I actually want to want to cover the very first daylight bank robbery in U.S. history. Yeah. Put that one on the list. Yeah, uh, Jesse James pulled it off. Not surprising. Yeah, um, I, I got a very good book. Uh, Jesse James, um, Last Rebel of the Civil War by uh, T.J. Styles. Good, good book. I and I highly recommend that book and the other book Styles wrote, um, Custer's Last, the Life and Times of Custer. I think it is. He wrote he, he wrote a book about General Custer, so it's, it's a really good book. Um. I'm going to look it up real quick. Because um, Terrible Glory was good. 
he was uh, the the book was really great. It's uh, Custer's Trials by T.J. Styles. He goes more into everything about Custer than he, he purposely does not cover the the Battle of the Bighorn because it, it's been covered. So. Well, folks, we're going to wrap this one up because uh, I'm pretty sure Monica here looks like she's going to pass out on me. Yeah, my head's going to like hit the keyboard and get the whole like the. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks, uh, you know where to find us. Check your podcasting apps. Join us on Facebook for Killers, Cults, and Nut Jobs. I'm Scotty J. Say goodnight, Monica. I already think I did. Good night, Monica. <laughs> Yawn. <laughs>